Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Nina Clark. I'm here with Jason Bam and our collaborators from the Association for Out Surgeons and Allies, or AOSA. Andrew Schlussel from that organization is here today again hosting, and he has some introductions to our team for today. Well, good evening. Thanks again for having us back. Uh, I think this episode is going to be so important because this is really the crux of this organization. This is what we've all wanted a long time ago. So I'm just I'm really proud to have everybody here and all the effort they put in. So we got three great guests. Um, first, we have Cameron Smith. He's a third year medical student um, in Joplin, Missouri. We have Christina Jordatis. She's a PGY4 from the Medical College of Wisconsin. And Jillian Wolfe, she's a PGY1 at the Brigham in Boston. So really wonderful to have you all on. Thank you again for having us back on. Great. Thank you. So we are super excited to have you guys. And I am in particular because I've been really interested in medical student and resident education really since I started residency myself. And our first episode with AOSA that we recorded a few weeks ago really focused on a lot of the history of AOSA and how it came to be. And so today we're actually focusing a little bit more on its future in the form of you all, the trainees and medical students who are forming the kind of groundwork of this organization. So I'd love to hear a little bit from each of you about how you got involved and why this organization was really important to you to join as a trainee. So I got involved with AOSA. I was actually just got on med Twitter and I saw the organization pop up and I was trying to find more ways to be involved as a cis gay male in the uh, medical student community, especially in the LGBTQ plus community. And I thought it was a great experience and way for me to be able to help promote it even more, especially medical student wanting to go into a specialty like surgery. I also found out about AOSA on Med Twitter, and I think I joined partly looking for community. And then also, I think, because I was interested in advocacy, especially kind of in the medical education space within surgery. And I think kind of a pivotal moment for me was when I was a junior medical student and I attended a panel for LGBTQIA residents. And it was kind of for applicants. And there was kind of residents from each field. There was like PEDS residents and OB residents and surgery residents. And all the residents that were on the panel identified was LGBTQIA. And the topic came up of like, should you be out or in your interviews or application? And the PEDS residents were like, definitely. And the OB residents were like, for sure. And then the surgery residents were like, I mean, maybe. (laughs) So I think it's one of those topics where like when you talk to people about it, They'll say, oh, like this is an issue that's like solved for like, why is it such a big deal? But I think the reality is there are a lot of people that don't feel comfortable being out at work and particularly in surgery. So I think there's a a lot of room there for change. So for myself, I found out about AOSA through my institution because we were one of the first ones to join at MCW. And also along my mentor, Dr. Cordy Collins, was involved as well. So the combination of those two things got me involved and Why I felt it was important to get involved was being close to the end of my residency. I remember what it's like as a PGY1 or 2 to not be fully out and to be scared at the implications of being out as a general surgery resident. And that eventually, thankfully, transitioned. So now I'm fully out. But I definitely don't. My goal at this institution and the things that we do for the medical students and residents is to make I don't want anybody to feel like I felt kind of at the beginning of residency. 
and even as a medical student interviewing. So that's one of the things that's important for me. I was just wondering, do you all think that it's the historical perspective on what the world views a surgeon as that makes that barrier to full inclusivity? Or where do you think the major barrier barrier hurdle is today? I think that certainly contributes to some aspects of it. I also wonder and think in terms of surgery, we're very goal-oriented in getting our work done. <laughs> Sometimes we don't necessarily stop to think or consider these things kind of in our daily lives, but it inevitably bleeds into our professional lives no matter what we do. And so I often wonder if it's a combination of those two things in addition to just like kind of the historical nature of the surgical field in general that contributes to that lag or unwillingness to just address it as openly as maybe other specialties would. Yeah, I think in surgery, you sort of rely on others' perception of you to advance your training. So people perceiving you to be competent and knowledgeable, for example, may get you more autonomy in the OR. And so as a result, there's, I think, a lot of attention paid to people's perceptions of you as a trainee. And so I think an extension of that is concerns about homophobia. And it's interesting because I did a little bit of research in this area. And one of the things that I heard a lot was sort of from faculty, for example, was like, I'm not homophobic, but like there's definitely some guy or some person in the department that is. And like you could never really get to the bottom of like maybe who that was, but it was sort of this insidious presence that struck fear into people about you kind of don't know who is okay and who's not okay. And so then you don't say anything just to be safe and make sure that you are being given the same opportunities as others. I think as well that the surgical field can tend to be a, hold on to the hierarchy a bit more. So when that power differential exists, especially as a younger resident, it can be really challenging to be open about that kind of thing. Yeah, as someone who's starting to get into the clinical aspect of the training, the hierarchy is just something that you're kind of scared of going into because you want to be the perfect med student. You want to try to get on their good side, but part of your person, the LGBTQIA part, it's very important to me. And that actually shines through a lot in my life, but I don't want to be, I don't want to hide behind a big part of my life in order to get somewhere. And that's where I can definitely see where I sometimes hide away from where I am in order to make someone like me more. And unfortunately, it's kind of that like scary hierarchy and going into residency in the next couple of years that I'm going to have to really uh, look out for. You guys sent us a couple of references to articles just in preparing for this episode that really go through some of the data around LGBTQIA representation in general surgery residencies. Can you guys review a little bit of kind of the main points that you took away from that, where we're at in terms of representation and lack of representation, really, in our training programs? Yeah. So the studies that we could send really talked about the resident experience. And I think one notable study from 2014 was a national survey of general surgery residents. And that found that more than a third of respondents who identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual did not disclose their orientation when applying because they feared not being accepted or being retaliated by against the residency program. Other surveys, larger surveys of medical trainees at large have shown that kind of repeatedly surgery can be perceived as one of the the least inclusive specialties. And then last year, there was a survey, which full disclosure, I was a part of. And we looked at, we surveyed program directors and faculty in surgery. And that showed that the majority were very accepting of people who are open during the application process. One 
respondent who was a program director said they wouldn't rank somebody if they knew that they were LGBTQIA. And then 16% of respondents felt that faculty at their institution may not feel comfortable if a LGBTQIA resident brought their partner to a social event where resident family members were invited to attend. So I think that we have some, although it's certainly not a ton of data around sort of the both the resident perception and the faculty program director view. That study in particular, congratulations on it first, but it stuck out to me too, because I think we hear so much about like microaggressions, right? And that is not a microaggression. That is like your career is in the toilet if this person happens to be the one deciding your fate as a general surgery applicant. If you guys are comfortable, I would love to hear, I know, Christina, at least it sounds like you had the decision of coming out in the middle of residency, but how that decision was made and how you guys chose to approach this with your own training programs and with your own experiences so far, and Cameron, obviously your early days in this, but how you're approaching it as you kind of come up in the years. Yeah, I think it was a combination of professional support from my institution, also just personal choice. I don't know, I'm the type of person where at the end of the day, I want to be able to be myself and that's how I have the most confidence in what I'm doing and I need to embrace that in order to be the best general surgery resident and doctor and person I can be through this process. So I think there was a coming to terms with that. I'm in the middle of my training process. But then professionally, and this is something I can't emphasize enough, is departmental support is important. My institution started doing um, something called cultural complications, which is where about like every other month or so, we talk about a social issue, for lack of better words, in a um, almost like a case presentation standpoint. And it include things like, uh, you know, we did a session on LGBTQ individuals and various other topics. And once I saw my institution start doing, that actually made me feel more comfortable. Like, okay, there's definitely buy-in from higher-ups in my department at MCW to encourage me to come out as well. So it's important. And it's okay to be yourself. Going back to the personal note, it's important for all of our well-beings, really. For me, it was also more of our personal choice. I was out in undergrad. And then when I was applying to medical school, I kind of kept it under wraps because I didn't know how people or medical schools were going to perceive me. And then when I got to uh, my current school, Kansas City University, it's in a really rural area. And so I was very scared of I, I just need to not bring this up. Everyone in this area probably is homophobic. But my first year, we were already getting lectures about how to take a sexual health with different genders, etc., hormonal therapies. And realizing that my school is teaching me this really allowed me to kind of come out of my shell during my first year be like, this is who I am and it's okay to be gay in medical school and maybe hopefully show other people that it's okay. And I really, it was definitely a great choice because I was miserable when I first got to Joplin, just hiding behind this fake facade. But coming out again in medical school, it definitely opened my eyes and definitely showed I can really do anything and hopefully inspire other people to do the same, especially in this rural area. Yeah, it was, it's definitely a difficult decision and a very personal one. And I think I went back and forth a lot. And I think also part of you is like, how much of this, is this a part of my professional identity versus personal identity? And, and how does that play a role in the application? Because the application has both personal and professional elements. 
But I think in the end, I felt like, while it may cost me opportunities in some places, it was better to sort of filter programs kind of from the outset. And if that was going to be something that wasn't kind of welcomed there, then it was probably better that I not not be there. Yeah, I definitely agree with the three of you. So much of your personal life will blend into a surgical residency. It's a lot of hours away from family and friends, and it's hard to have to hide those things when you want to try to be as relaxed and learn because this is your this is your time to to hone those really important skills. So I really think that's, that's really insightful from all of you. Just going into Jillian a little bit, what you started talking about. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the application process. You guys touched on it a little bit. I just wanted your thoughts. Does sexuality matter? Should you feel comfortable bringing it up? Should you avoid programs that you feel you're not comfortable even speaking about at the interview? How do you how do you think students these days should approach that interview process? I, it's actually I actually got this as like an interview question, kind of like push back a little bit, like, does it matter? And I think it does in the sense that personal and professional lives are oftentimes in combination. And especially we're five to seven years, it's a long time to not have your partner at events or be able to talk openly about that partner and have that be something that's welcomed. At the same time, I don't think applicants should be forced to disclose. I think that's a personal decision and one that they should make for themselves. But I think that programs should aim to have a welcoming environment where people feel comfortable disclosing if if they wish to. It, it does matter. And if somebody feels comfortable, they should hopefully feel comfortable disclosing that. I mean, it not only applies for just applying for residency as two, but especially for me as I'm going to be going for a fellowship and a job at some point soon, that's something that I'm looking for going forward is a place where I can feel comfortable being myself and being open. And I would say definitely more so than even applying for residency. It's more on the top of my list of something to be open about, regardless of how it's received, just so I know how to filter that place for where I end up for fellowship or for a job in the future. But so, yeah, I encourage applicants to does matter. And if they feel comfortable to disclose it, then definitely go for it because it can help you weed out kind of what you're looking for or not looking for. Hey, this is uh, Jason. I just had a question. Do you have any tips for the, the applicants on how to disclose? This is how do you bring it up? This is an important part of my identity. This is it's important that I feel comfortable. Program. How do you approach that in the interview process, and how do you disclose it to the program? So I think there's a couple different ways to do it. I know then the application process, like you can talk about important activities that you've done and why they're important to you. So if you've done kind of advocacy work in this area. You could kind of relate it back to your identity. But certainly when the program says, why are you interested in us? You should list out surgical reasons or strength of the program. But you could also say, if you wanted to kind of work it in, what's important to me as like a person with the identity that you hold to be at an inclusive program. And I can tell that this program is is really inclusive. So that can be a way to kind of fit it in. But it is kind of whatever feels comfortable, I think, to the individual person. There are places to put it in your application, and then you can bring it up in, in the interview. Ideally, programs aren't asking you about your partner, because I think it's technically an illegal a legal question. So it usually doesn't come up that way, but you can fit it in and talking about activities that you've done or about what you're looking for in a program. I was wondering if you don't feel comfortable coming out to the program and you don't have those things in your application, what are some of the things you could look for that either shows a program is inclusive or red flags that maybe perhaps this is not a good idea? Yeah, good question. It can be a challenge, 
But some things to look out for or that I think to look out for is just the diversity within the program in and of itself, not even just with LGBTQ individuals, but with minorities in general, the percent of women that are at the institution. So there's a couple of key factors. And then also looking at the resident complement as well, or the fellowship or the attending complement in the department. That could be a guideline as well. Those are the first couple of things that come to mind. Yeah, I agree. I think if you have the opportunity to have some kind of a mixer like social event where maybe you highlight some initiatives you have around DEI initiatives or highlight residents or faculty that are out in your program, I think that can be a great, great thing to do. And then I think also there were a few programs that I applied to that on their website they had kind of like a statement sort of talking about how they're like a welcoming place and they sort of like listed several different groups. And it's one of those things where it's like easy enough to put that on your website. However, it was apparently not controversial at that place that they could put it on their professional website. And so like in some ways that like was a a green flag of sorts of like, what are you willing to say our program 100% stands behind this idea? Cameron, do you think schools are similar approach or do you think it's a little bit more challenging given it's such a larger group of people that you'll be interacting with? I think it's changing for the better. I definitely thought it wasn't initially, but as I proceeded in school, it definitely got a lot better. People were much more welcoming than I thought. My school has a safe club, which promotes LGBTQIA inclusivity. We have a lot of ways to promote that. And then definitely there's a lot of DEI initiatives. We recently, my city had a pride parade and our school had a part in that where a lot of the faculty that aren't even part of LGBTQIA showed up and uh, supported a lot of the students. And it definitely showed that they do care about us and our well-being and our teachers. I agree with that. And I would add all schools, whether it's medical schools, residencies, fellowships, can advertise policies they have that are inclusive, whether it's like benefits for your partner And they can, I think if you're also in a location that may be perceived as maybe less friendly or less inclusive, it doesn't hurt to name that and talk about how your institution sort of protects its residents against what may be going on in the local area. Are there resources out there behind the scenes for the interviews that uh, folks can go to where other people are talking about some of these programs? Well, Christina, I don't know if you want to talk about the project that you've been working on for AOSA. Yeah, sure. So we are working on developing a directory. It's a survey we're going to send out to members at AOSA that is going to be pretty comprehensive in terms of where each member can fill out where they did their training, no matter where they're at, whether they're a medical school trainee, a resident, a fellow, or an attending. And they say you're an attending, and so you've been at all these different institutions. You could list where you've been in your contact information. So somebody could reach out to you and be like, hey, I'm interested at this institution for XYZ part of my career. What are your thoughts on the LGBTQIA culture there? So that's something that's in the works. Jillian's idea <laughs> to begin with, and I've been carrying it forward. And it's something we're all very excited about. So one thing I feel like I'm hearing more and more of is programs starting to think about and talk about these issues more often, in no small part due to the advocacy from groups like AOSA. So how have your departments or for Cameron, your school, made you feel like it wasn't just going to be a safe space for you to exist for four to seven years, but also a place where you could actually thrive and become the person that you wanted to train to be? 
my medical school had a lot of out surgeons at, at various different sites. And that was the University of Minnesota. And I was lucky enough to have a surgery mentor there that was also out and in leadership. And so that was really powerful, I think, not only to show me that that you can be out and progress in your career, but just to have kind of that support to bounce things off of as far as applying and how to approach things. So I think that can be really powerful at any phase of your career. And then at Brigham, I think it's been an incredibly welcoming environment, really inclusive, kind residents and faculty both and have sort of created, for example, connected us with like mentors and with other residents who identify as LGBTQIA. We had kind of like a recruitment event for LGBTQI applicants recently, which was a ton of fun. And it was great because not only the residents who identified that way showed up, but then all of our co-residents showed up kind of in support to show that they are it's a welcoming place. So and then recently, actually today, we had an education on gender affirming care, which was great. So working it into the curriculum, I think, as well, just shows that the institution supports its residents, faculty and, and patients. Right. Because a lot of our patients identify this way. Yeah, I definitely echo that. When I reflect back on all those things that Julian just mentioned, but also just the personal moments that certain attendings took throughout my training once they did learn that I was gay to just sit down with me and kind of pick my brain about the institution and also how I'm doing as a person. That was huge. And I think those little moments from different people throughout my training have stood out. Also meeting other queer individuals along the way, whether it's in residency or our staff that I work with, support can come in different places. Something to, to keep in mind too for anybody listening, like who might be an attending or in a position of higher power is if you hear things being said, like you don't know who's queer in the room. So like speak up and say something. I think that's another thing that comes to mind on what can matter and make an impact in the culture and also in the individual's life. Along with just the community support that my school has, they also have a lot of social media presence where they are, are actively posting about LGBTQIA plus affairs. And I think it's really affirming to know that they're not just keeping it within the community, but they're publicly putting their support out there. I also think there are ways of normalizing LGBTQIA plus uh, individuals in the workplace with our standardized patient encounter exams, making sure that we know how to take a proper sexual history. And it's just really great for my school to be able to support me in that and it's definitely what we see in the lectures too. One of my professors, when he taught the hormonal therapies back in my endocrine block, it was really, that was probably the most eye-opening. Like my school is actually trying to teach me how to take care of transgender patients. And I just think it was very like jaw-dropping for me, making me think I am wanted here. They want me to be my best. It is really wonderful that Many of these programs are formalizing DEI niches and departments, but unfortunately with some of the legal stuff that's and policy stuff that's gone through with some of these states that are now restricting the, the terminology of DEI, particularly Florida, Texas, North Carolina, do, do you think that's going to affect the way that students and residents see these programs and understand who is inclusive when they can't advertise and they can't say these things? Do you think it's going to restrict or deter people from wanting to go to those places? 
I think it certainly can, and it might depend on the place and the location and the specific law. But I don't know, the hopeful part of me figured hopes that institutions will also just get more creative in stepping around that, that truly care about the issue and want to make sure everybody's welcome to somehow figure out a way to still send across the same signal. But yeah, it's certainly going to be a challenge with everybody trying to figure that out from different aspects of it, whether you're the applicant themselves or the institution. And that's such a loss because I think not only do you miss out on talented people, but I think patients suffer when there's not representation. And even in these states with these restrictive laws, there are sometimes large LGBTQI populations who deserve representation in the medical system. I definitely felt it's already affected me and my school's already talking to us about applying for residency. And I'm from a small town in Arkansas, and eventually I would love to go back there and maybe practice, maybe practice here in Joplin, Missouri. But as I hear more about these restrictive laws affecting different patient population, it definitely scares me a little bit about, do I want to come back to practice? There is that a new story, I believe it was a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon in Louisiana that I heard about where he actually left the state because he didn't feel he was safe with his family. And just like Jillian said, it's affecting patient populations because I believe he was one of two in the entire state. So it's very unfortunate that these things are happening and that we're having to think about it. But it's definitely something that we're I'm going to have to think about when uh, applying for a residency in a couple of years. Yeah, I'm also from a rural area and I just I think all of the time about all the stuff we hear about rural surgeons being lacking and there's not more people filling the voids when people retire. And all of this uh, speaks a lot to what you guys are experiencing and talking about in terms of where you might feel safe working for your entire career. Right. And I think you, you framed it beautifully in that it's just a loss. It's sad to see. I want to shift a little bit to spend the last few minutes that we have here really talking with y'all about how you've found support from mentors. And we've heard a lot about your programs and the ways that they've supported you over the years. But how have you gone about finding specific personal mentors or professional mentors who have kind of shaped your work uh, and who you're becoming in your training processes? So for me, I know I mentioned Dr. Collins at the beginning of this. We were paired through the second trial, actually, and it was wonderful to have. It was the first time I was ever able to talk to somebody who was also queer about not only things going on in my personal life and how that affects my professional life, but also just to gain insight professionally from somebody who thinks at least in some ways about the things that I do in terms of LGBTQ things and career and institutions and stuff like that. So that was one thing. And then I think along the way, you just naturally find who in the department provide you sound advice and that you can get onto that level with. So I think there's a certain extent that it naturally happens. But, you know, for me, it was definitely like a second trial and opportunities like that through organizations. Yeah. Shameless plug for AOSA. <laughs> Become a member. We're working on a mentorship program that would pair people of all kind of training level with others to sort of like provide mentorship around different topics. So that's great. But I think also for me, like when I think about my medical school mentor who I had for many years, the way that I kind of just happened into her lab. But part of the reason I stayed is she would oftentimes talk about her wife and like it made me feel like like I like somebody else. There was somebody else 
that I could like look up to who had maybe traveled the path that I would be on. And so I stuck around and we had did a ton of great research together. But I think just it was just a casual like, oh, I have to go get dinner for my wife and I and our kids. But I think that just sort of being open, even in the workplace, kind of led me to seek her out as a mentor. And, and that was a great mentorship and continues to be a great mentorship relationship. I'm still kind of looking for a mentor being in a small city with I believe we have five surgeons or something like that. I don't really have much opportunity to get the mentorship that I desire. But with AOSA and the developing mentorship program, I'm very hopeful that I can find someone that can not only help me guide through applying for a residency, but to also tra help train me to become the best LGBT surgeon that I can be and then how to respond in certain situations, whether at work through, through their experiences or their advice, because I definitely think a, a lot about how that's going to affect me in the future. Yeah, just another shameless plug for AOS's developing mentorship program. Well, I definitely know your stories will resonate with a lot of people out there, but for students and trainees or anyone listening who identifies as LGBTQ plus and maybe still in the closet, maybe too scared to talk to anybody in their schools or programs, if they want to reach out to you, how could they find you? Because I'm sure you have even more information you can give to them. Yeah, you can reach out to me at my email, which maybe we can include in the show notes. Yeah, and same. Feel free to reach out to me by email. Yeah, same here. And then also my Instagram handle is Cameron underscore Smith underscore 1996. Cameron, does that mean that you were born in 1996? That seems so late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank all of you uh, for joining today and sharing your stories. Uh, it was super fun just to get to know you guys a little better and to learn from you. Um, I hope our listeners got the same. More to come from our BTK and AOSA kind of crossover episodes in the future. We'll be covering more topics with these great people. And we will continue to plug AOSA, put their stuff into our show notes. And as mentioned, you can contact any of our guests from today if you'd like to reach out for any reason. I think that's all I've got, Andrew. Anything else? That was just wonderful. Thank you all for your stories. It was really great. Thank you for having us again. Of course. All right. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.